Please remain standing with me and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We have just begun a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, probably Jesus' most famous sermon, and we'll be beginning this Sunday in Matthew chapter 5. If you are uh, new to Christianity, uh, unfamiliar with the Bible, visiting with us today, we've printed that for you on page 5, uh, or 12, sorry, of your worship guide. This is Matthew chapter 5, the first five verses, the first three of what are called the Beatitudes. This is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Will you join with me as we pray and ask God's blessing on his word preached this morning? Let's pray. Lord Jesus... This word is about you. It came from your lips. And it was penned through Matthew by your Holy Spirit. And so we are asking now, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, make it come alive in our hearts this morning. Shape our minds by your word. May we hear your voice through your word preached this morning. We need to experience both your power and your compassion. Both your exalted strength and your meekness. For we are broken people in need of both. So come and be with us, we pray. Amen. Well, it's no secret, anxiety and depression have been on the rise in the United States and really since the 1930s, you know, kind of spiked from the 30s onward. Um, And it's not just more people um, who are suffering from anxiety and depression, Um, it's younger people. More journal articles have been written on not just the rise of anxiety and depression than any other um, um, issue that plagues the human heart, Um, but... More articles have been being written lately about how anxiety and depression are being manifested at much younger rates. I would say it is the number one pastoral issue that I find myself having conversations with over and over, helping people walk through the difficulties of anxiety and depression. And I've shared with you that that anxiety is something that I find myself, as I'm getting older in age, wrestling with more and more. And and I think there's something keen about that that it reveals to our hearts. I have a watch that tells me to breathe. It also tells me to stand. Sometimes I feel like I'm carrying my mom around on my wrist, nagging me all the time. But the, the thing that really surprised me when I got it was that it told me to breathe. It's curious. Not because I walk around holding my breath, but because we have made, I think, in our culture such an idol out of busyness 
and productivity that we forget to just be. So now we need technology to tell us, stop. Stop for a minute. Quit doing. Just breathe. I've been learning a hard lesson um, over the last couple years. It's not a profound lesson. It's an important lesson, I think, and it goes just like this. I'm just a man. By God's design, I'm limited. I don't have to be perfect. I've not arrived at this conclusion, but it's something that God's been working slowly into my heart. I don't have to make everyone happy. I don't have to be hyperproductive. I don't have to get everything done. I am just a man. And I'm free to fail. By God's design, we are limited. Because we're made in the image of God, right? This great truths that we hang our hat on as Christians. We have great glory and dignity as human beings, because we are created in the image of God, more dignity and glory than any other creature that God has made, but as well created in the image of God, we have built-in design limitations. And these two aren't opposed to each other. In fact, glory and designed limitations are what it means to be human. Now think about this. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And in his humanity, he knew his limits and was fine with them. He was comfortable, in fact, with them. When he got thirsty, he didn't say, I should rise above my thirst. No, he asked a woman for a drink at a well and then struck up a conversation with her. When he learned that his cousin, the forerunner, John the Baptist, had been martyred. He didn't pull up his bootstraps and decide that I'm going to get through this and I'm not. No, he he withdrew. He knew his limitations. This is something I need to deal with. And he withdrew by himself to grieve. His tank ran out in ministry quite often because he was man and he pulled away to seek refreshment. He knew his limits. Even after the resurrection, he had a meal with his disciples, still needing to nourish his body. I am just a man. Great glory, great designed limitations. And I think there's an important subtext that gets a little bit harder to swallow, that really gets in the way of us being comfortable with that, because I am just a man also comes with the confession, I'm not God. And I'm not supposed to be. Hannah Anderson, in a really good book on humility, says not Hannah Anderson, the clothing designer, but Hannah Anderson, the humble wife of a pastor in Virginia, says, when we believe we are responsible for our own existence, we trust our ability to care for ourselves. We have nothing but stress as a result because we are unequal to the task. If we could just get that into our our souls, we would get that humility is the key to flourishing. Humility is the key to flourishing. That sounds so odd, doesn't it? It It gets at the hidden question that's behind our struggle with being comfortable for who we are. Because what I really want to know, if I'm going to say I'm just a man and embrace the subtext, I am not God... 
then I have to know this for certain. Can I trust God? And will He notice me? Will He care about me? And that, that's the shift that moves me from I'm just a man to I am not God and I am not supposed to be is the deep and settled conviction. God can be trusted and He notices me and then delights in me. How can I be certain that God will delight in me and out of that delight He will care for me so that I am free to just say, I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. And it's okay. I am not God. Well, the secret sauce that makes that possible is to make less of yourself. And the secret sauce that makes that possible is to know for certain that God makes much of you. So the church is called these nine blessings, these nine sayings in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, simply because that's Latin for blessing. And in each of these, Jesus is laying out the pathway to blessing, to the blessed life. Now, we need to define that word a little bit. When Jesus starts with saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger, he's saying a little bit more than what we typically mean in the English language by blessing. We think of blessing is equal to good gift. I'm blessed today, which means, you know, um, the checks came in, my account is full, and nothing went wrong. Today is a blessed day. I've received good gifts. Well, blessing in the Bible is much richer than that. It has a much richer meaning. So, for instance, people often in the Psalms bless God. Now, it's not them saying, it's not saying, well, I gave God a good gift today. It's much richer than that. So instance, Psalm 103, David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. And, and David's not obviously bestowing on God something that God is lacking or improves God's existence. What David is saying is, I approve of you with all my delight. You are beautiful to me. It's often what the different Hebrew and Greek words for blessed throughout the Bible convey, a sense of approving delight. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he's not saying, God's going to reward you with a good day. He's saying, deeper than that, God approves and delights in these people. God approves and delights in those who are poor in spirit. God approves and delights of those who mourn. God approves and delights of those who are meek. And that's why he tends each of these blesseds with also a promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's the promise. Assurance that God delights in you, approves of you, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, God delights with approval in those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's the promise. Blessed are the meek, they are the ones that God approves and delights in. Here's the promise, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit, are the ones that cause God to make much of in his own being. 
These are the ones that he just can't quit looking at. And so Jesus starts the Beatitudes, interestingly, with how we relate to or view ourselves. What we see in these first three Beatitudes is that God does not make much, if I could put it negatively, God doesn't make much of those who make much of themselves. God makes much of those who make little of themselves. Jesus is reorienting us in these first three Beatitudes. He says, I want you to see yourselves appropriately, both both to see yourself appropriately and then to see how you fit in God's approving delight appropriately because you'll never next one hunger and thirst for righteousness unless you first see yourself rightly. You'll never be pure in heart unless you see yourself. All the rest of the commandments, all the rest of the Beatitudes, sorry, build on themselves. There's a progression to these Beatitudes. And so Jesus starts us on the pathway to being delighted in by God. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are not the physically poor. Luke does that in his gospel. These are the spiritually poor, specifically. And poor means a lot more than just a little bit lacking. Uh, if, you, if you can't go out to lunch today, but you could go out to lunch yesterday, you can't go out today because you don't have any money, you're not poor You're poor when you can't go to the grocery store and get any food at all. You're destitute. You're not just a little bit lacking. You are under the dungeon of oppressive poverty. The poor in spirit know that their problem isn't just that they are a little wrong here and there, but are a spiritually impoverished person, oppressed by sin and incapable of escaping its dungeon on their own. Those who are poor in spirit as a result are not surprised by any sin that they find in themselves or in others Robert Murray McShane famously said something I just so appreciate him saying just a profound godly man says um, I find the root of all kinds of sin in my heart I am not surprised when I see that particular sin in that person I've seen that in my own heart. It's a spiritually impoverished man, one who's poor in spirit. Adolf Eichmann, the German mastermind behind the Holocaust, in his final closing statements after the Nuremberg trials, after he'd been convicted um, for murdering millions of Jews, famously said, and I quote, I am not the monster I was made out to be. This mass slaughter is solely the responsibility of political leaders who's dumping his responsibility on others. Contrast that with Yel Dinur, a survival of Eichmann's Holocaust, who when coming face to face with Eichmann, broke down sobbing in the courtroom and then fainted. And you may think he fainted because he had seen the man that had Killed his family and his friends. But he was undone by his own words because he was afraid of himself in that moment. And here's why 
quote, I realized that I am capable of doing this, what Eichmann did. I am exactly like he. The poor in spirit are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt, who say of themselves, I am evil, born in sin. The poor in themselves look in spirit, look inside and see nothing good in themselves. And lest this crush you, it is again attended with two promises. One, these are the ones that catch God's eyes. The ones who are honest about not only their sin, but their capability for sinning. These are the ones in whom I will look, God says in Isaiah. These are the ones who are beautiful to God. He delights in those who are poor in spirit. They are the ones who belong to the kingdom of God. Second promise. I delight, I'll reward you. And some have said, and I, I hear this and I get this. Some have said, Zion sure does make a lot of the sinfulness of man. As I thought about that, I thought, you know my... I would answer that critique with a thank you. Thank you. Because we are on on the pathway of setting our people into a position of having God delight in them because we're despairing of ourselves. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near. Not to those who have their act together. Not to those who are righteous in themselves. Not to those who look down on others. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The kingdom of God doesn't belong to those who have their acts together. Do you get what Jesus is promising here? Where have you come from? What have you seen in your lives today? You automatically think because your conscience condemns you that I'm disqualified. I'm disqualified for the kingdom of God because Satan accuses you of all the wrong that you've done. You think I'm disqualified for the kingdom of God. And the voice of Jesus comes in and says, No, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This just runs against hypocrisy, right? It pushes us to honesty. This is why there is no room for hypocrisy in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no room for it because there's no need for it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I just love this. He said, He said this, if you're unfamiliar with Lloyd-Jones, he was a a Welch pastor. Some of you have sat under his preaching. He says, the man who's truly poor in spirit need not worry so much about personal appearance and the impression he'll make. Why? He'll always make the right impression. He's not hiding anything. I don't need to hide from Jesus, and I don't need to hide from you. Blessed, secondly, are those who mourn for they're the ones who shall be comforted. You see, it's one thing to say I'm spiritually bankrupt and there's no good thing in me. It is another thing to say I'm poor in spirit and it grieves me. I think it's easy for us to get to the point where, it's, where we're comfortable saying I'm just a sinner. We don't let the convicting work of the Holy Spirit cause us to mourn. Mourning is a result of the great loss of something very dear to us. For instance, I don't mourn if I lose a penny. I would mourn 
if I lost a child. But in the Bible, mourning even takes an even deeper, richer meaning for us and gives an insight into what Jesus is promising because throughout the Bible, people mourn when they sense that things are not the way they are supposed to be because of the effects of sin. So in Isaiah 61, for instance, Israel mourns and God comes and comforts them because they're mourning the fact that he has judged them for their idolatry and disobedience and brought Babylon in to set Jerusalem into captivity. And their mourning, their sin has caused an effect It's caused a great loss, and they're sorrowful. Or to take it to the other extreme, in Revelation 21, the new heavens and new earth, no mourning in the new heavens and new earth. Why? No sin in its effects. Jesus has put everything right again. And so since these beatitudes are building on each other, Jesus is is talking about more than just people who are mourning the loss of something precious. The ones who, in this context, who will receive comfort are the one who mourn because their sin has offended God in his holiness. If poor in spirit is an honest assessment of your spiritual bankruptcy, then mourning is the proper response. Those who mourn see themselves with God as their reference. I'm not just looking at, at my life and saying I'm broken. I'm not just looking at other people and saying they're broken or I'm not as broken as they are. The one who mourns and receives the comfort of God is the one who's so deeply grieved by their sin that they are undone. It's possible to feel your brokenness and not be broken over it doesn't just seem so contrary to the full life it seems so contrary to the joyful life of the christian and you'd be thinking maybe at this point how bad am i supposed to feel about my sin should should i feel bad and if you're really a suit you might be thinking at this point should i feel bad if god has already forgiven my sin but james writes to the christians whose sins are forgiven be wretched mourn and weep I think this is one of the ways that the gospel really frees us. It allows us to, to actually mourn over my sin because I know on the other side will be a God who comforts me. Those who mourn over their sin have experienced the substantial joy of the comforting work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the word that Jesus uses for comfort here is the same word that John uses in John 16 for the Holy Spirit. And thus the twofold promise again The person who mourns over their sin is the one that God delights with approval over and he himself will draw near and be your comforter. So he'll send himself to assure you that your sin has been fully paid for at the cross. The comforter sent by Jesus who died for your sins will come and assure you of the love of the Father. It's not just this, it's not just this external word by God. It is in fact He Himself dwelling in those who mourn saying, I'll comfort you. I will bring you joy. He will assure you that the sin you grieve over has only offended Him, but the God who is offended Himself has paid for it at the cross And so if you want to experience soul-filling, heart-delighting joy, joy that satisfies you to your bones, then take the pathway of mourning over 
your sin with the assurance that God refuses to leave you there. He will not leave you mourning over your sin for very long. Psalm 30, verse 11. You, David says, have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You, you have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. And then he reminds us earlier, for God's anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. It literally moves us downward and upward at the same time. Because the gospel says to us, you are both more sinful than you could ever imagine, but more loved in Christ than you could ever dare dream. And to only emphasize one or the other misses the, the pathway to joy and living a life of delighting in the God who delights in us. The one who's able to say, I'm just a man, is confident that he is or she has been accepted as they are, not as they're supposed to be, but as they are. So lastly, blessed are the meek, for they are the ones who shall inherit the earth. First, let me say this, what meekness is not. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not someone who does not have a backbone or is unwilling to stand up to others. For instance, Moses, the great leader of Israel, stood in front of Pharaoh, the greatest leader on the face of the earth with multitudes of armies behind him and said to him, let my people go. Is the same Moses who was described by God in numbers as the meekest man on the face of the earth. Meekness is a profound strength that is rooted in the conviction that while there is no sufficiency in me, There is great sufficiency in the God who cares for me. Meek people make much of others. Meekness is a deeply settled ambition to see others' interests advance over my own. The meek person talks little about themselves because there just isn't that much to say. But meekness is difficult in the world. We've talked about this before. These Beatitudes are... And the whole Sermon on the Mount is very countercultural. And meekness is difficult in our world because the world crushes meek people. The world rewards self promotion. And we have people who've made millions out of nothing more than promoting themselves. YouTube stars who put on makeup and make millions, play video games, make millions. Not because they're playing video games, but because they're shameless and excellent self promoters. TV stars who keep themselves famous with self-promotion engines and the meek never get their 15 minutes of fame. But Jesus notices. He notices the meek. Little Zacchaeus up in a tree. Jesus walking by. Thousands didn't even see him. But Jesus saw him and sat with him and ate The woman of Nain who just lost her little boy and thousands are passing by the funeral procession. Jesus notices her. Self-promoters may make millions, but those millions will be consumed with fire when the judgment comes. But the meek, here's the promise, will inherit the earth. 
Because while nobody else was watching, Jesus' gaze is fixed on them like a star-crossed lover who can't take his eyes off of the beauty because he is so captivated. You want evidence that this promise is true, that, that the meek will inherit the earth? Then look at Jesus. It's a proven path. He was the most meek man that ever lived. The world killed him. The world does take advantage of meek people. But the most meek man that ever lived has now been rewarded by his father. He raised him from the dead and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. He has received quite literally the earth, a new heavens and new earth. He's received his father's house. A meek man inherited the kingdom of God. And he's gone because he makes much of others. He's gone to prepare a place for you. Isn't it interesting that Jesus seldom spoke of himself? Have you ever noticed this? He might, he might open the scriptures and kind of give you an idea of who he is and the mission that God sent him. But in terms of his own character, he just doesn't talk that much about himself. But one of the few times that he does, and we heard this in our call to, work, our call to confession, this is what he says. He doesn't say, who do, you, do you know who I am? I, I have obeyed every single commandment. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, do you know what I'll do to you one day? He, he does say that, but not often. But when he does say this, when he does speak of himself, he says, I am meek, I'm gentle, and lowly of heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. The key to being set free from ourselves is to think less of ourselves. Not not just less of who we are. But being okay with our limitations really requires that we be set free from our pride. So let me borrow a fable from another. Once upon a time, as all good stories start, there was a frog who lived up north where it was cold. And he wanted to go to the south. I saw the swans flying overhead. And he thought to myself, the swans are smart. They're going down to where it's warm. And I want to live in the south where it's warm and there is no snow or cold. So he got an idea can't fly they can fly and so he said to the swans join with me in this let me get a stick and if you'll help me each of you put this stick in your mouth and I'll hang on to the middle and we'll get out of the miserable cold together so his two swan friends agreed to help him and it worked out beautifully for miles it was an ingenious idea However, as they're flying over the farmlands of North Carolina, a farmer looked up and he saw a frog flying by holding onto a stick with his mouth. Look at that, he shouted. That's amazing. I wonder whose idea that was. The frog, quite proud of his incredible idea, opened his mouth to tell him. And that's when he fell to his death. Well, the way of Jesus is much better. 
you open your mouth to make much of him, you will fly. You will soar to new heights. Not because you'll suddenly stop being just a man or just a woman. A frog will always be a frog. And never be a swan. But when you get to the place where you can say, I am just a man. I am just a woman who God delights in with approval. You will find yourself soaring to the heights of joy. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have done much to do for ourselves what we could never do for ourselves. And so there is now a doorway into your blessed approval and it is through Jesus Christ. We can't hold on to our own selves and to him at the same time. And so liberate us. Make us poor in spirit. Cause us to mourn. And then make us meek. And make us okay with all of that. Because we are people delighted in you. Because you have delighted in us in Christ. For his death and resurrection, we praise you. Help us to make much of him. In his name we pray, amen.